Come on down, stop on by, hop a carpet and fly to another Podcastian Night. <laughs> Podcastian Nights, neath Podcastian moods. A fool of his guard could pod and cast hard <laughs> out there on the dunes. <laughs> Salam and good evening to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> Not sung by Robin Williams. Popular misconception. I did notice that. Sung by Bruce Adler. But uh, of course, Robin Williams does voice that character and it sounds close enough. You could believe it. It's true. If it's a good one, I like to start with the song that starts the movie. It is a good start. A song that has uh, no controversy whatsoever <laughs> to kick off a movie that has no controversy whatsoever. <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk about it. Aladdin. And welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. How are you? Been pretty busy day, but mostly okay. I'll I'll be I'll be okay. <laughs> how are you doing this podcast, Ian? <laughs> I'm I'm ready. <laughs> we want to give a special shout out, as always, to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. Brad, Brad, he's our man. If he can't do it, great! <laughs> uh, this week on the program, we are just quoting lines like their original jokes. And we are continuing <laughs> the Renaissance era with 1992's Aladdin, directed by Ron Clements and John Musker. We are talking about Laddie. Aladdin, <laughs> a movie that has Robin Williams in it. I don't know if anyone knows this. Mom, what does this movie mean to you? Well, I have indeed always enjoyed this movie. It was a lot of fun. I actually have my first special connection to this movie is before it even came out. My very first trip to Walt Disney World was in the summer of 1992. And what is now called Hollywood Studios back then was the MGM Studios and they had part of the animation studio there. And I actually got to see the animators working on Aladdin. Oh, yeah. You could walk by on this walkway and look down into the room as they're working on Aladdin. Pretty cool. Did you have any idea like what scene they were working on at all? Or is it? I have no idea. I'll be honest with you. I couldn't even remember until I looked it up in my old journal what movie they'd been working on. <laughs> gawk, children, gawk at the freaks. So, yes, unfortunately, I didn't make note of what they were actually drawing, which would have been cool. A couple years later, probably um, in around 94, on a trip to Disneyland, I actually got to go to the Aladdin's Oasis dinner show. So we actually ended up sitting at a table right up close. This is one of the trips when we went to Disneyland with my grandparents, my mom's family. And um, we were right at a front table and they actually call for volunteers from the audience to help participate in one part of the show. And my sister got to go up and participate a little bit. I've just sent you a picture. There you go. I think I've actually seen this. Is this still around or was it still around sometime we'd gone? This is no longer around. It may have been there one of the times when we went. 
So what it what it was was like a a restaurant outdoor kind of restaurant in Adventureland with like a dinner theater show, like a almost 30 minute show. But also my papa, my grandfather was called up to volunteer as well, which I thought was pretty fun. Here's the picture of him. <laughs> oh, yes, I've seen this picture. I didn't have the full context for it. So, uh, well, would you like to describe this? So they, I don't even remember exactly what they were doing in this part of the show, but I mean, with Mindy, they gave her like a little veil and they had her, you know, pretend like she's doing a little dance. And they had some, they had a couple other volunteers, women doing the same thing. And then for my grandfather, he's dressed in a very floofy skirt and a gigantic metal pointy brassiere and um, very silly hat and they had and come out and do like a ridiculous dance. And he was, you know, always game to be goofy. So he, I was going to say he's he's so obviously committed. He is. He is very committed to the bit. He is laughing and doing a dance. We had a great time. I, I feel like maybe one of the times we went when you were little, you got to see that. But I know when we went in 2013, we saw the Aladdin, a musical spectacular at an indoor indoor theater at Disney California Adventure. I don't know if you remember that. I remember some Aladdin show that we went to. That's probably what you remember then. That was more of an indoor performance, like in a big theater. And they actually, you know, had some special effects, like with the carpet flying and stuff. And whoever they have doing the genie for that show, they always did a bunch of like actual cultural references from whatever time it was, you know, rather than just repeating the jokes from the movie they would write new jokes for. Right. And so I know this is kind of like it should be towards the end, but I'm talking about, you know, my personal Aladdin remembrances. No, there's so much to to say about this movie. And honestly, like, I feel like this is going to be a short synopsis because all the stuff around it is more interesting than just, yeah. you know, retelling Robin Williams jokes. <laughs> I love this movie. All the things about it. I had the I got a T-shirt of Aladdin that I had for years from the park and you. I mean, this was my favorite Disney movie for a long time for so many reasons. I think as someone who's always been very interested in comedy would go on to, you know, study comedy somewhat serious, like in a boring academic way that sucks. (laughs) And this is one of the funnier ones, right? Like this one, I would say is by and large a straight up comedy. It's a little more serious than like your Emperor's New Grooves, Your Sword in the Stone, maybe. But yeah, but it was also a cool action movie and it starred a boy character, unlike a lot of the best Disney movies. So I can't remember a time when I didn't adore this movie. This is definitely the single Disney movie I've seen the most. And what really helped with that is for uh, one of my birthdays, whichever one where we went to Denver and I got the Garfield books as well. I want to say that was about your eighth birthday, ninth birthday. Something like that. I got the first DVD I ever owned. DVD, fabulous he, which was, (laughs) uh, of course, Aladdin. Yeah. And man, like we just, uh, my brother and I, we just wore a hole in that thing. (laughs) Well, second hole. (laughs) Like anytime I wanted to watch a Disney movie, it's like Aladdin. So this is the first one where 
you know, we always joke about this, but truly, I think I could probably close my eyes and recite this entire movie. Quite likely. I just absolutely adored it. It was everything I wanted in a movie, except for pirates, but Jafar does have a parrot, so close enough. (laughs) But over time, I think in large part because I saw it so much, I have definitely cooled on it a bit. Again, part of it was just I watched it too much. I was thinking, I don't think I've actually watched this movie for about six or seven years. And even still, when we were watching it, I was like, yeah, this part. Yeah, this part. Yeah, like (laughs) it's just oversaturated. It's it's fully imprinted in my brain. Like I will remember this movie and scenes from this movie when I have forgotten your and dad's faces. (laughs) So that's that's part of it. The other part is, as we'll talk about, like as an adult, I have some problems with it. And as an adult in 2021, I have a few more problems with it. I still like this movie a lot. It is still a really excellent movie. It is still, you know, obviously one of the the best of the Renaissance. And the fact that I loved it means I really can't be objective about it. Like it's, it's carries so many feelings, but I do think this is a movie that means a lot to a lot of people. And especially, I mean, I hate to be so, you know, reductive about this, but I do think like, oh, yeah, this was a boys movie. Like, I think a lot of, you know, uh, boys around my age, around your age, like, oh, yeah, this is the cool Disney movie. Like, it's funny. It's kind of edgy. You know, there's sword fights. Again, it does star a male lead, obviously. Right. You know, it's not about a princess, even though it kind of is about a princess. There's way more guys in the movie than girls. That's for sure. This movie right here. This is some certified grade A guy stuff. (laughs) So let's talk about some of the guys who made this movie. (laughs) This movie started, as we discussed last week, with Howard Ashman, who was really into it. It was the movie he specifically pitched to Disney after Little Mermaid. And he wrote a 40 page treatment along with, I think, six songs that he and Mencken wrote several songs, quite a few. And that's what they developed. And that was version one. And several of those songs made it into the movie, mainly Arabian Nights, Podcastian Nights. Yeah. Friend Like Me. Friend Like Me. Thank you. And Prince Ali. One Jump Ahead was not. One Jump Ahead and A Whole New World were written by Alan Mencken and Tim Rice. That's what I thought. Tim Rice, who is best known for collaborating with Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, on a lot of his shows. Obviously, Andrew Lloyd Webber, the most successful, basically the most successful person on Broadway ever. Anyway, so the first version of the story was Mencken's, which was not, you know, finished again. It's only 40 pages, but he has his idea. And then it was given over to Linda Wolverton, who is a very interesting person we haven't really mentioned Um, She is one of the few women who had a real place of prominence in Disney at the creative side this time. She is the first woman to have written an animated feature, which was Beauty and the Beast. She also co I mean, she just co-wrote many of these Renaissance era movies. And she is the only female screenwriter who has sole writing credit on a $1 billion movie. Wow. Do you know what movie that is? We've talked about it. It's not an animated canon film. Huh. I do not know. That would be 2010's Alice in Wonderland, the Tim Burton one. (laughs) (laughs) She also wrote Maleficent and the sequels for both movies. I see. Well, at least those ones are a little bit different from the 
original Disney movies. Yeah. And honestly, the 2010 Alice in Wonderland, I I mean, it's hard for me to evaluate the script of that movie because the visuals are really, really horrendous. Right. Well, they don't hold up very well. Yeah. And who knows, you know, compromised vision, whatever. But uh, so she wrote the second version and she incorporated stuff from another. uh, Obviously, Aladdin uh, originally is one of the, you know, Thousand and One Arabian Nights stories. Right. She incorporated elements from another story, The Thief of Baghdad, such as the villain named Jafar and a sidekick human thief named Abu. Uh, obviously, some changes were made. <laughs> then Musker and Clements, that would be John Musker and Ron Clements, maybe if I say it enough. <laughs> they then kind of did their own version. They they changed some things about the Linda Wolverton version. Mostly from what I understand, they kind of tightened things up. Yeah, they got rid of like. Jasmine doesn't need a handmaiden. She could just talk to the tiger, which is something we've talked about with Musker and Clements is that, you know, from Great Mouse Detective, in part because they were trained to work on movies that had no money, (laughs) they very much, I think they're quite good at, at least at this stage in their careers, kind of tight storytelling in that way and really, you know, trimming the fat. Uh, And of course, Ashman, unfortunately, couldn't see the project to completion because he died in 1991 Um, and he did work a little bit on the Prince Ali song. So I think that's where the confusion was, is he worked on it. But from what I understand, the final version is not really his. He just, you know, they knew they needed that song. Unfortunately, after he died is when they really started Cutting. Well, maybe not. Unfortunately, it's it's a complicated thing. Two of the songs that got cut out that Ashman wrote that he, you know, really defended and really wanted in the movie uh, and maybe they would have worked in his version of the movie got cut out. One of them was Humiliate the Boy, which was going to be Jafar's villain song. It's notable Jafar, one of the few Renaissance era villains who does not have a villain song. It's true. Other than, you know, (laughs) to the ends of the earth. Whoopee! He has the reprise of Prince Ali, but he doesn't get a full song. And Ashman wrote Humiliate the Boy, and it was in part him working through his feelings about, you know, battling the terrible disease that he had and how he felt humiliated by it. And I think that kind of comes through because the song, if you listen to it or look up the lyrics, you can just find on YouTube the like storyboards for it with a music track that was actually performed by the voice actor for Jafar. It's a really, really cruel song. It does not fit the tone of the final Aladdin movie. Ah. That's for sure. Um, And again, as a song written by a man who was dying about what he felt the disease was doing to him, it's pretty powerful. As a fun villain song for a Disney movie, it's horrific. (laughs) So they had to cut that. The other song they cut was, of course, more famously, I think, Proud of Your Boy, which was restored for the Broadway musical, which is in part it was cut because it was a song that would relate to the character of Aladdin's mother, who mom's status. She did. (laughs) (laughs) She's not in the movie. She got cut. Cutting room floor. They cut her. She was 
slashed right out of the movie. But Proud of Your Boy was written about, again, Howard Ashman as a gay man, had a very complicated relationship with his parents. And so the song was in part, you know, him again, like writing very personally about like, mother, are you proud of me? You know, because he's dying and he's reflecting on these things. And, you know, there is uh, a documentary you could watch about the Renaissance era called Waking Sleeping Beauty. It's on Disney Plus. If you watch this, like Mencken, especially, and some of the other people who worked on this movie are crying, thinking about cutting these songs like, yeah, it was a very hard decision to cut these very personal songs written by their friend. I think, again, for the movie in its final state, those cuts make sense. Like you wouldn't want Jafar to stop and do a three minute song, even if it wasn't an incredibly cruel song. Like, right. Again, that kind of Musker Clement storytelling. It's so much better if he's just like, I'm in charge now. Aladdin, you're gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm revealing everything. Like, let's get a move on here rather than slowing things to a crawl to humiliate Aladdin, especially because in this version of the movie, He doesn't, like, hate Aladdin. Aladdin's just kind of a thing in his way. Right. But it would be weird if he was like, and now, again, three minutes of violent humiliation. Humiliations galore. Right. That would be like Iago doing that to the Sultan makes sense, but Jafar doing it to Aladdin, it's it's just weird. And Proud of Your Boy, again, relates to a character who just isn't in the movie. Mm -hmm. They went through these three different versions And they showed a story reel, which is basically like storyboards of the entire movie, a whole like two hours to. And it's especially appropriate to use the jingle in this case, because Katzenberg then said, you have to change the entire movie. Yep. He said he would not reschedule the release date. So this was in April 1991. He says change the entire movie for November 1992. Yeah. He hated a lot of things. Um, One thing he said was, quote, 86 the mother, the mom's a zero. So Katzenberg (laughs) killed Aladdin's mom, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. He straight up did. Uh, And he wanted to change a whole lot of other things. So then uh, they brought on Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who had not worked in animation. And I think, you know, obviously the movie turned out pretty good, but I think a lot of the animators and the Disney team resented having to bring these guys on. But these guys were more the kind of script writers and script doctors who Eisner and Katzenberg would have liked, right? Yeah, yeah. And they kind of brought a little more of the edge to the movie. They really apparently, like, their big thing was working on the action and making Aladdin more uh, of an action hero. Obviously, this movie uh, has seen Indiana Jones, you know what I mean? (laughs) But also, at some point in this process, they decide that the model for Aladdin was going to be Tom Cruise, Let's put a pin in that. <laughs> and so, you know, they they change it up a lot. Yeah, because wasn't he supposed to be much younger in the earlier treatments? 
Aladdin. Yeah. Uh, and they they change a lot of Jasmine's character. And, uh, you know, as usual, I don't care to go through all the story changes, but. Right, right. Yes, a fourth version. Um, and Ted Elliott and uh, especially Terry Rossio, they would work on several other Disney movies. Uh, they'll be back for Treasure Planet, for example. But they also wrote all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which, as we've talked about, I love. And uh, some other movies, Terry Rossio script doctored the first National Treasure and uh, uh, Terry Rossio co-wrote Deja Vu, which is a fun uh, Denzel Washington time travel action movie that I, I recommend. <laughs> and Terry Rossio even helped write this year's Godzilla versus Kong. And he's someone who in the past I would cite as one of my favorite script writers. Now, I have to announce that he is uh, an insane person. Oh. He is an anti-vaxxer before it was cool. And he announced this with a tweet that also managed to use the N-word. So he announced that he was an anti-vaxxer and a racist at the same time, like he's trying to speedrun getting canceled. I guess so. So unfortunately, uh, Terry Rossio, despite writing a bunch of my favorite movies, sucks as a human being. We hate to see it. There was another influence for this movie, though, uh, besides all these different versions. And that is a movie called The Thief and the Cobbler. Have you heard of this at all? I have. I remember seeing it, you know, after Aladdin came out, not watching the movie, but, you know, seeing it on the shelves or whatever and thinking, oh, look, they've done the cheap Aladdin knockoff, which as I was doing the research for this, I, I saw they actually had been working on it for much longer than Aladdin, so it's it's much more the other way around. Let me let me tell you the story here. So Richard Williams is one of the most interesting animators ever, and one of the most like meticulous. He was a hand drawn animator whose skill was just out of this world. What he's best known for was animating the uh, he directed rather all of the animated sequences and animated many of them himself for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I see. Where, of course, he worked with Disney because that movie was where Eisner and Katzenberg built kind of their new animation department and all the outsourced animation studios we're going to talk about later all around the world. So he really kind of helped set up this era of Disney animation in many ways with that movie. And again, he is a truly incredible animator. Mom, I'm going to send you uh, a little scene from The Thief and the Cobbler. This is uh, a character named Zigzag, played by Vincent Price, and he's going to be doing some stuff with a deck of cards. So that sequence, every single one of those cards is 2D animated, personally animated by Richard Williams, by hand for years. He spent years on that like two second sequence. And so the Thief and the Cobbler was his passion project. And he worked on it for years. It was 100% independently financed. He would pay animators, many of them Disney animators, to come and help him out until the money ran out and then work on the movie would just pause for several years. And then it would resume for several years. So. I mean, decades and decades of work. It eventually got a release through Miramax 
that was completely butchered and had horrible voiceover narration put over it and a bunch of bad stuff and really was hammered into more of an Aladdin-like shape by probably the single worst person we will be talking about today, Harvey Weinstein, serial attacker of women and absolute monstrous human being who also had terrible creative instincts. So he uh, so the thief of the cobbler, the version that was actually released, uh, and I think it may have been released with a different name or something. It's completely butchered. Like it's, it's not what was supposed to be at all. Fans have assembled out of the footage that exists what they call the re cobbled cut, which if you're (laughs) going to try to watch this movie is the best way, even though sequences are unfinished. Yeah. So it's a really, really cool movie. I mean, I'd like to sit here and just send you scenes all day, but I guess it's not really what a podcast is. True. The Disney animators were very aware of this. Again, many of them worked on it. They had all worked with Richard Williams. And there's a lot of similarities between this and the final Aladdin movie. You know, this character of Zigzag, he's an evil vizier. You'll notice he has several Jafar-like features, including the twisty beard. But he also has the blue skin and crazy faces of the genie. Uh, The story is about a poor boy and a princess who does not look unlike Jasmine, who is the (laughs) daughter of a sultan who looks not unlike the sultan and this evil vizier who's also a sorcerer. Like, you could draw a lot of parallels if you want to. And so, you know, this is one of the many times that there's been kind of a conspiracy theory of like, oh, Disney stole this, right? Like people (laughs) like to say this about The Lion King as well. It's a lot more spurious in the case of The Lion King, and we'll talk about it. In this case, though, Peter Schneider actually confessed when talking to James B. Stewart in Disney War that they had taken elements from Thief and the Cobbler. Quote from the book. Richard Williams later contended that many elements of Thief reappeared in Disney's Aladdin. Peter Schneider conceded ruefully, we took the best out of Richard. So (laughs) Peter Schneider, vice president of animation, straight up has said, yeah, we took stuff from it. So that is another inspiration for it. Again, a lot of times people will say, oh, Disney just ripped this off. And a lot of times it's like parallel thinking in this case. No, they definitely took some stuff. I don't think it's fair to say they stole the whole movie, but they took some stuff. They were, in fact, having to rush at the end there. (laughs) Yeah, that definitely didn't help. I mean, they they had to rush throughout this this whole thing. It's kind of crazy that this movie is good at all. Right. Before we talk any more about the release of this movie, why don't we go through the cast? Sure, let's do that. First, of course, we have um, doing the voice of Aladdin, Scott Weinger, I think, or Weinger. Yes, he I mainly remember seeing on the TV show Full House Mm -hmm. that I watched around the same time as Aladdin came out. He played the boyfriend of the oldest girl on Full House. Yep. And I remember actually seeing I don't know if you knew there's sort of a crossover episode of Full House The House Meets the Mouse, where the Full House characters go to Disney World. And of course, it's, you know, everybody, not just the family. All the friends and everybody goes to, including the boyfriend. In the show, the boyfriend's name is Steve. And interestingly enough, like most of the roles that Scott Weinger played that aren't Aladdin, he was called Steve. I guess he just looks like a Steve. (laughs) But (laughs) he dresses up as Aladdin in that episode. 
which was quite funny. That is funny. I knew at the time that he was also the voice of Aladdin because, of course, I'd seen all the making of stuff. and Yeah, and after this, I mean, other than Full House and Yeesh Fuller House, he pretty <laughs> much dined out on Aladdin for the rest of his life. You know, he did. He was like, you need Aladdin. I am here to be Aladdin. Yep. Unless you need him to sing, in which case it's Brad Kane. <laughs> Linda Larkin is Princess Jasmine. This seems to be her most famous role as well. She's pretty much Jasmine forever. Which again, like, I think at this point they were starting to have a sense of we're going to do a bunch of sequels and TV. And I mean, this is really the first one, but I think they knew they were going to do it after like Little Mermaid's success. They were like, we want to do more. We want to merchandise it. So I think they were thinking like, We want to get actors who we can definitely get to come back. (laughs) Jonathan Freeman does the voice of Jafar, and he actually came back and did Jafar in the Broadway musical as well, which is great. Yes, he's really just a voice actor, but what an excellent voice for Jafar. Oh, yeah. Great voice. Frank Welker gets a named character in Abu. (laughs) And of course, he's also the Cave of Wonders in Raja. (laughs) And I'm sure additional random animal noises. Gilbert Gottfried does the voice of Iago. The lamb! (laughs) So Gilbert Gottfried is the other known quantity. You know, he's the other somewhat famous person in this movie. He was a comedian, um, a stand-up comedian, like somebody else we'll talk about. And he, you know, had done several roles already He was an obvious fit for Iago. He sounds like a parrot, much like we were talking about with like Sterling Holloway and everyone. (laughs) You know, that is just his voice. Like he just has an interesting voice. He's a perfect pick for a voice actor. And I'm going to say something controversial, especially controversial on this call, which is that obviously Genie is the best performance in the movie, like one of the best, most iconic voice performances of all time. You really can't fault it. My favorite, the one that gets me the most laughs, the most consistently, I think, is Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> I really enjoy him in most things. I especially enjoy him in this. And you wish he was dead. I don't wish he was dead, but Iago is the only role of his that I can tolerate him in. His voice is just so obnoxious. <laughs> it's perfect for Iago because Iago is a very obnoxious character. <laughs> but Gilbert Gottfried is fingernails on chalkboard to you. Frequently, yes. Yes. So much so that when I pointed out to you while we were watching this, that he has he is married. He has a wife who listens to him talk like this constantly every day. I'm very sorry for her. (laughs) Your immediate reaction, which you walked back, to be fair, but it was very funny, was you just said she's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) She's wrong for tolerating it, which, again, I know that's not what you really think. Everyone deserves love and happiness, but That was a really funny thing that you said. Anyway, so I'm going to uh, very much drive a wedge between us on this podcast by continuing to do (laughs) Gilbert Gottfried voices. This is going to be our most contentious episode yet. Douglas Seal returns to do the Sultan. Remember, he was the koala in Rescuers Down Under. And in all of the lousy spinoffs, it's Dawson from Great Mouse Detective takes over for Sultan. So... Yeah, because I think Douglas Seal died. He was pretty old, yeah. At least retired shortly after this. Mm -hmm. Our favorite Jim Cummings is in this as Razul, the chief guard. 
And I think a couple other voices. Yeah, I think so. But mainly the chief guard, which when he came on and we were watching the movie, you were like, ah, it's Pete. Because <laughs> he really is doing the Pete voice. His Razul voice is a voice he does for everything. It's what he does yep. for Pete. It's what he does for Hondo Onaka in Star Wars. When Jim Cummings is brought on to do villain, if you do not tell him to do this voice, he will do this voice. <laughs> and you know what? Bless him. Anybody else you specifically want to mention? Yes, I think there is one other person we should talk about. Robin Williams as the genie and the peddler. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I first figured that out when I was young and, you know, watching this movie, it was like, hey, that's the same voice. Yeah, it took me a while. (laughs) So obviously this is the first big so other than the wartime era, which is like, okay, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know. Other than the wartime era, this is the first like huge celebrity get. They learn all the wrong lessons from this, where in this case, sure, they cast a celebrity in the role who was a huge celebrity and it was a great performance because he was a great fit for the role. Yeah. But then after this, as we've discussed ad nauseum, Katzenberg would just go, oh, let's put celebrities because they're big names. And even before this, a little with Oliver and company. But this is, you know, what is a great performance, but breaks animation forever. Yeah. It was not actually Katzenberg's idea. It was uh, apparently it was mostly Musker and Clements's. <laughs> They've said, like, we were designing the character to look like him. We were writing the character, assuming he would do it. We would have been in big trouble had he not. <laughs> And they eventually won him over basically by showing him pencil tests. They actually drew the genie doing some of his stand up and he loved it. He apparently loved doing it. Uh, He famously said that the character of the genie is a Looney Tune in Disney drag (laughs) because which I think is a fair assessment, right? Like he is very crazy and anarchic and doing a lot of reference humor, more like the Looney Tunes. Right, right. Then, unfortunately, he would start to have problems with the studio. Really just one problem. (laughs) He hated Jeff Katzenberg so much. And the main thing that happened was he did not want his name or his voice to be really used in the marketing of this, Um, and especially in merchandising. Uh, There were various reasons for this. Part of it was because he was in uh, Toys, a film directed by his dear friend Barry Levinson, and he didn't want this movie to, like, steal that movie's thunder. Toys didn't really need any help having its thunder stolen, to be honest. But also, he... I don't know. He just felt like he had a lot of integrity at this time. He was like, I don't want to be used for, you know, dumb merchandising or whatever. He he saw himself as having a lot of integrity. Now, eventually he would I don't want to say he would abandon his integrity, but he would certainly abandon his aversion to a merchandising and be doing roles he didn't believe in. I have seen RV, Robin. I have seen <laughs> RV. What he especially got mad at was seeing the McDonald's or uh, was it Burger King? Either way, the fast food commercials where they used clips of the genie to advertise the Happy Meals. Uh, He was very mad about this. And when he talked to the studio about it, Katzenberg basically said, screw you. You're the talent. I'm the big dog. I get to do whatever I want. Uh, And he didn't appreciate this. He's very, very upset. He gave a bunch of interviews bad mouthing him because... 
you know, unlike a lot of the voice actors, Williams actually had the power to, you know, say things he didn't like in public. It's true. And he gave a speech at the Golden Globes where he won for best voice actor. I believe it was the Golden Globes, but he won an award for best actor somewhere. And he had a big joke where he thanked every single like executive working on the movie, except Jeff Katzenberg and made a very Mm -hmm. big point of excluding him. Hated him so much. Famously would not return for the first sequel. But after Katzenberg left and subsequently people tried to make good with him, including uh, giving him a painting and giving him a ton of money, he would, of course, come back for the second sequel. But basically, Katzenberg got replaced by Joe Roth and Joe Roth went to Williams like hands and knees begging, please come back and do this terrible VHS movie. (laughs) People say, you know, he hated doing a Disney movie. That's not true. He liked doing a Disney movie, but then he got mad afterwards. Well, he hated how he was treated. Yes. Uh, Imagine that. Who who would have ever known Disney not treating an actor? Well, doesn't sound like them at all. (laughs) And I do want to talk a little bit about the animators. The, this movie is not a huge technological innovation like the last couple have been, other than, you know, we are now using caps for everything and we're now using like a ton of CGI elements. You know, carpet is CGI. Cave of Wonders. The Cave of Wonders is all CGI. The tower is CGI, like tons of CGI. Many great animators working on this. Glenn Keane was the animator for Aladdin. Andreas Deha was the animator for Jafar. Um, And most importantly, Eric Goldberg was the supervising animator for Genie. Unsurprisingly, he had a whole small team working for him. And Goldberg deserves so much credit uh, and his team deserves so much credit because as funny as Robin Williams is and as much as this performance, much of which was ad-libbed, defines the role it's it, the animation makes it so much better and so much funnier and elevates it. Yeah, because not only are you hearing that all the silly, funny things he says, but they're having to animate all the different caricatures and silly um, shapes and things that the genie turns into. Uh, and this movie was the highest grossing film of its year. It's true. Single highest grossing film. First animated movie to do that, if I'm not mistaken. Definitely the first Disney movie to do that. Yeah. And it was, of course, Disney's highest grossing, at least its highest grossing animated movie up to that year. It's true. It did not hold the record for long. No, it was beat by the next movie in the canon. Just <laughs> wild. This is what I meant when it was like every year a better and better movie for a while. Mm hmm. Uh, and everyone loves it. It's Aladdin and it's great. It was also very, you know, critically successful. Did not get that Best Picture nomination, though. No. And here again, the brains started to break <laughs> with the Best Picture thing. Even at the time, this movie was controversial for its depiction of Arabic people and quote unquote Arabia. And, you know, I, this is really Disney's first attempt in the animated canon of depicting non-white people yep. and a non-white environment. Uh, and they didn't get it exactly right. Not so much maliciously, but they definitely. It's And again, even at the time, there's a couple of articles that I won't be linking to. One is it's racist, but hey, it's Disney from The New York Times. <laughs> Another is Angry Over Aladdin in the Washington Post. You can find both of these online. These are articles from 1993 that are in the archives. And even then, it's people, you know, 
talking about basically problems that like especially the Arabic community and Muslims had with this movie. But we like to share uh, when we cover movies from a culture that is not our own articles that were written by those people. And uh, the New York Times was not hiring any Muslims in 93. That's for sure. They barely hire any now. So the two articles I've picked out, one is not appropriate for kids. Just going to say that, but it's I think it's a very good article in its own right. And it's an interesting perspective. It's called The Problem with Aladdin, written by Aditi Natasha Keeney, who is an Indian woman. This movie does one of the things problems this movie has, which this article talks about. And the other article I'm linking to talks about even more is throwing basically every culture in Southeast Asia together and being like, these are the same, like the Middle East and India. And it it does a lot of stuff. But this article, The Problem with Aladdin, is a really good primer to, you know, the complaints people have with this movie, the Orientalism and the, you know, the fact that the villains are generally depicted as having kind of more ethnic features, quote unquote, than our heroes who are voiced by white people and look more like white people. And, you know, again, talk about Aladdin being based on Tom Cruise. And uh, this article also links to a ton of other articles. So, you know, if you want to kind of understand the controversy, this is a really good place to start. And also talking about the, you know, history of the time when this movie uh, happened to come out while a huge rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes was happening. And of course, shortly before 2001, when we would have an even larger rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes as a result of 9-11. So this movie falls into a lot of unfortunate tropes. Uh, And then the other article I have is called New Aladdin, Same Racism from Kajal Magazine, written by Fatima Zera, uh, who is, as the name implies, writing a little bit more about the new movie, but also writing about the old movie. She has a more nuanced uh, perspective in some ways. The first article is very, very angry and like not unjustifiably so. Right. But very uh, much more so versus this article. The author talks about, you know, when Aladdin came out, she saw herself in it. She was so excited that there was a character who, you know, was anything like her in a Disney movie. And now she has a slightly different opinion about it. And um, again, talk about what the new movie does better, what it is not as good. So uh, those are two good articles sharing a couple of different perspectives. But again, overall, there isn't anything in this movie that's like, you know, the Native Americans in Peter Pan, where you're like, well, this is malicious and mm-hmm. horrific and obviously very intentional. It's much more like, as I think of it, this is not how this movie would be made today. There are certain lines in this movie that would not be in if made today having them all be played by white people and many of them modeled after white people. That's not how it would be done today. You know, mashing all these cultures together rather than having it more specific. Well, and the fact that they did change the lyrics of the first song almost immediately with basically within eight months of when the movie came out, they changed the lyric of that first song because of the controversy shows that it was not malicious or intentional. Basically, it's, oh, we didn't even think about that. Now, the one thing I will add, just talk about it not being malicious or intentional, which I broadly agree with, 
But I do want to note, just because I have read all of Disney War, Michael Eisner did have a habit that is documented in that book of calling people he did not like Muslims, which was very bizarre. He would just refer to them as this, like not people who were and you know, just a weird thing he would do more than once. So again, I don't think it was malicious on the part of the whole team, but like Michael Eisner, definitely an Islamophobe. I mean, it's it's not ideal, but that is the story. Now, shall we give uh, what's going to have to be a relatively brief synopsis of the movie Aladdin? Something a little more lighthearted after all this tragic death and uh, offensive stuff. And and oh, yes, by the way, Robin Williams also a tragic death, of course. So, right. That's great. Anyway, funny movie now. Funny movie. It does start with the, you know, negative depictions warning on Disney Plus. Yeah. I like the Arabian Nights song. I do. I like the Arabian Nights song, too, quite a bit. Although we had the soundtrack for this movie from, you know, when it first came out. So I actually heard the song in its original form many more times than I've heard it in the new form. And it, like, catches my ear every single time. Right. Whereas I have almost never heard the original version. Yep. We had a tape with it, but... I do like how they start the movie... With this peddler character who is, in fact, the genie in disguise, basically telling us the story later. But the the fact that we have this almost framing device where it's somebody telling us the story of Aladdin, just like, you know, the thousand and one tales. Yes. Of the Arabian Nights, which, you know, Aladdin is part of one of those. So, you know, we're getting told the story like that. Right. And then let's Robin Williams, whose, you know, real character is not going to show up till like a third of the way through the movie, maybe even a little longer, start you off with a bunch of good bits. There's too close, a little too close, which as a kid, I thought was the funniest thing that had ever happened. There's will not break. It broke. There's the famous Dead Sea Tupperware. Yeah, which I didn't even get when I first saw this movie. And of course, he. Uh, gets to deliver the theme of the movie, which is it is not what is outside, but what is inside that counts. Hey, do you get it? Yes. How many times I should have made note of how many times they say diamond in the rough in this movie, because (laughs) it does start to feel like it's a one time too many. Yeah. (laughs) And where there's a dark night and a dark man with a dark, which, yes, also referring to the bad guy is a dark man. Yes, yes, yes. I never thought of it like that, though. I always thought of him like he's dark because he's evil, not his skin color. <laughs> yes, a lot of things in this movie can be read a lot of different ways. That's all. But Jafar is extremely creepy. And again, I really love uh, Freeman's performance. And I love the way they animate Jafar, too, with his mouth that curves up so weird and... Like, he's got a billion teeth or something. <laughs> yes. Which, again, is a bit like the Richard Williams character zigzag I showed you. If you look at these pictures, he has a million teeth as well. He's a lot more uh, restrained in his ring wearing, though. Yes. <laughs> yes, zigzag has like 50 rings. So he's chatting with Gazim, who lets us know that he had to slit a few. A humble thief. He had to slit a few <laughs> throats. Um, so he's killed people. So you wouldn't feel bad if he gets eaten by the Cave of Wonders immediately, which sure enough, he does. Yep. He is, in fact, not a diamond in the rough. He is all the rough. 
Yes, and Iago and Jafar make it very clear that what they're looking for is a lamp. Presumably the lamp the peddler showed us in the beginning. And yeah. it's, it's fun how Iago starts just parroting everything Jafar says, uh, which is very annoying. And you're like, oh, is this going to be what this character is for the whole movie? But then he has his little Gilbert Gottfried aside that's, you know, geez, when'd you dig this bozo up? Uh, the Cave of Wonders, by the way, it looks great. The CGI yep. looks so cool. It's such a cool idea. The Welker voice, even though I'm pretty sure it's like pitch shifted all to heck, is cool. <laughs> and then, of course, we have the I must seek out this diamond in the rough. Who could it be? And then we go straight to Aladdin, which it's like, yes, you did that in Beauty and the Beast, too. Who could ever learn to love a beast? Bell. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do this. Yeah, I mean, it's the Renaissance. <laughs> We're doing the same things over and over again. We are. But Aladdin is being chased by the guards because he's stolen a loaf of bread. And he sings the One Jump Ahead song, our introduction to Aladdin song. <laughs> Which is really fun. One of the reasons people attribute this to Ashman is he wanted this to be a much more jazzy movie. Um, he had, in fact, uh, initially envisioned the genie as being uh, a more Cab Calloway-like character. And so a lot of his songs tend to be jazzier. But this was not him, as we discussed. But it does have that kind of bouncy, you know, da-da, ba-da-da-da-da, ba-ba, ba-da-da-da. Yep, it's good. It's good chase music. Got It's got a good beat. Good chase music. Really fun. Uh, I guess technically second song, but, you know, kind of the first long song that a character is singing and it just establishes everything. And it's basically telling the story. You know, the the Arabian Nights song is setting the stage, but One Jump Ahead actually tells us the story more. Gotta eat to live, gotta steal to eat. Tell you all about it when I got the time. <laughs> like, that makes a lot of sense. Fair enough. That's what he's about. He steals only what he can't afford. And that's everything. And of course, we meet his monkey. <laughs> Monkey friend Abu. And, you know, we're stealing a bread, which is the classic sympathetic thing to steal. I feel like there is a joke with a big fat girl, which is one of the two jokes in the movie I really dislike. The other being the guards landing in poop, which I think is our first poop joke in a Disney movie. And I don't care for it. Jeff, I <laughs> may not be his fault, but I, I choose to blame him for it anyway. Yep. And here we have the director's cameos. Another suitor for the princess. Yes. <laughs> I think it would have been funny if they've actually gotten them to do their own voices. Yeah, but, the reason oh well. they didn't was because this was originally going to be a caricature of Siskel and Ebert, which they cut because they were like, well, we can't caricature Ebert without his glasses, they felt. And they didn't want to put glasses in the movie because they were like, that's too future of a technology, which is ridiculous. GD is dropping anachronisms. Yeah, but he's a magical character. He's the only one who does it. Anyway, they decided not to do it, so they told the guy animating the scene, like, whatever, put in some other funny caricatures. Clements and Musker got it back. It's them. They thought that was hilarious. They would do it for all of their movies after this. And it is kind of funny. And then we get to see, you know, Aladdin's home, basically, which has a great view of the palace, but you know, it's just a Tumble down building. As you say, we see Aladdin's home such as it is. And this is where we get, I wrote down the reprise, which is like Little Mermaid does it on the rock with the wave. Beauty does it in the, Belle does it in the field. 
And now here's Aladdin being like, I'm reprising my main song, but now it's very serious. Uh, I mean, it works all three times, but it is, you know, as we go through the Renaissance, when you watch them all in order, you're like, my my goodness. <laughs> They're doing it again. And then we get to go into the palace and meet Jasmine and the Sultan and um, her tiger, Raja, because she has an animal companion, too. And basically we get, you know, this is the info dump. Jasmine has to, you know, choose a suitor to get married before her birthday, which is in only three days. Of course, she's chasing off the stuck up prince, Ahmed, who was trying to court her. And the Sultan, I love when the Sultan says her mother wasn't nearly so picky. (laughs) Mom status. (laughs) Mom status uh, picked the Sultan, who (laughs) is a very silly man. (laughs) But a very rich and powerful man. I mean, also, we're saying picked. That does not seem to be how weddings go for the royal family of Agrabah. But but dead. Unfortunately, Jasmine's mom status is dead. I always think of the Sultan as like a stupid character. Like that's his bit is he's really dumb. Yeah. But I think that might be almost more from the spinoff. In the spinoffs, he's really like truly stupid. In this... He actually seems to be, you know, he's a bit of a doddering old fool in some ways, but he seems to be relatively smart, except that Jafar keeps hypnotizing him. Yeah. And this is where we learn that Jafar is his grand vizier, um, because while we had met Jafar previously, we did not know his role in the kingdom. And Jafar has his magical staff of hypnotism that he does frequently use to hypnotize the Sultan. You probably could have persuaded the Sultan into giving you the diamond you need in the scene, but he's just like, no, we're going straight to, like, what time is it? I'm hypnotizing you. Right. Jafar has a secret lair in one of the towers of the palace. And this is also where we're introduced to, I love the comedic game of Iago and the Sultan, where Iago is a parrot who hates crackers, and the Sultan cannot look at Iago without shoving crackers into his mouth. <laughs> I really like that running gag. I especially love how it pays off with Iago just stuffing dozens of crackers into the Sultan. But this is where he's really starting to complain about it. And I think this is even where he says, you know, and then I stuff the crackers down his throat. Because we learn, of course, Jafar wants to be the sultan. That's why he wants the lamp. And he has to figure out who's the diamond in the rough. Right. Don't think about the fact that he could probably just hypnotize the sultan into making him the sultan. It's true. But we do see later that it doesn't work on everything, like not completely. Yeah, I get what you're saying. The the more outrageous the demand, the harder it is to do the hypnotism. That's but a good point. Anyway, Jasmine, of course, is going to sneak out of the palace. She has found some brown clothes to cover her clothes with <laughs> so that she can sneak out. She's wants to be free and uh experienced life. She has never been outside of the palace. This is the part that has aged the worst for me. Isaac's SJW corner. You know, the the racial stuff, I understand it. It doesn't bother me. If I can watch Disney movies that are a lot more problematic than this, I can watch this one. But that's and that's just me personally. That's not, you know, invalidating anyone else's feelings. But 
I hate this whole thing of Jasmine basically cosplaying as a poor person and like stealing an apple because she doesn't understand fundamentally the concept of having to pay for or want anything. And especially where it grates, I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit and we might come back, but is when she's talking to Aladdin later and you know, he's talking about like having to constantly steal food and not live in one place for very long. And she's like always being told what to do. And, you know, arranged marriages are are very bad and often horrible. But she's like, I don't like being told when to go to bed. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I get that. I didn't eat today. <laughs> it's it's a little I mean, this is just any Disney movie that's like rich people are human beings. I'm like this greats. Rich people don't have problems. <laughs> I mean, they do, but they're not on the same level of as the problems of a, you know, street level. Yeah, Like if the if the Agrabah cops catch, you know, Jasmine she's going to have to have an awkward conversation with her dad. And if they catch Aladdin, they're going to kill him dead with many a sword. Like (laughs) we are not the same Jasmine. (laughs) All right, I'm done. I do like how she uh, plays along with the con. Yes, I do like where Aladdin sees her and is like immediately smitten. She's so beautiful. She does accidentally steal. Wow, Boo, she looks like she's bathed ever. <laughs> she bet she smells great. <laughs> and Aladdin then uses his conning ability to rescue her from this. And he, you know, tells her to play along. And she does real quick, which is a lot of fun. And it foreshadows what she'll do later when she sees Aladdin and starts tricking Jafar. Yep. She is very quick on the uptake. My favorite little bit is not just that she plays along with the fiction he establishes of thinking the monkey's the sultan, but then when she thinks the camel's the doctor, that's like she's evolved the bit a little bit. (laughs) Yes, not that doctor. I love that. (laughs) It's a very funny scene. It's a really good joke. I think it's funny the way they're both telling their deepest thoughts and desires, but not listening to each other. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I hate living in the palace being told what to do. You you hate what? You, back up. Right, right. And he's like, I wish I could live in a palace. <laughs> but it it is. It's it's great. I love the parallelism in that scene, even though, as you say, it's not really that parallel. But just the way they're both talking but not listening to each other, even though they both realize then when they say they feel trapped, they have the similar feeling, but not for the same reason. So the the guards find him. Uh, We have our first, do you trust me? Yes, because Aladdin does several things in this scene that he will do later, which cause Jasmine to recognize him again. He is in fact captured, though, even though they try to escape. And Jasmine reveals herself trying to, you know, set him free. But she finds out it's Jafar's orders. So she goes to confront Jafar. And Jafar, of course, lies to her and tells her, that Aladdin has already been beheaded. It happens. Swift justice. But he's just in prison. Yep. And uh, Abu rescues him. And then he meets a creepy old nasty prisoner with weird teeth. I like the creepy old man. My favorite bit of Jafar business. And I like how Jonathan Freeman, you know, he can play Jafar is scary. 
Or he can play him as funny and he could do so in the same scenes. Yeah. But this is, of course, uh, it's just so funny. And they do have to have the bit of Iago going, Jafar, it's you, Jafar. Do you get it, kids? <laughs> uh, just in case, you know, you are a child. And, you know, some children might not get it because he doesn't look like Jafar. But I think you and I both had one of our very biggest laughs of the movie on this watch when he goes, whoever has the gold makes the rules. And then he <laughs> wheezes and opens his mouth. It's such a, a funny take. And the beggar form of Jafar was actually uh, animated not by Andreas Deha, but by Kathy Zielinski. So, you know, a female animator did that great joke for us. So Aladdin's taken to the Cave of Wonders. And of course, as we already know, he's the guy. He is. Jafar, you know, as not Jafar, says, you could take anything else, but the lamp is mine. All the rest of the treasure is yours. And the Cave of the Wonders says, you can only take the lamp. Don't touch anything else. Touch nothing but the lamp. <laughs> so, you know, not really a great deal for Aladdin. Nevertheless, he proceeds with it. Uh, and Abu is a kleptomaniac monkey. He is. The inside, I mean, the Cave of Wonders is is gorgeous. This whole movie is the inside of the Cave of Wonders is so cool. And uh, they meet the magic carpet. So they, they are apparently allowed to touch the carpet, who is sentient in his own right. Its own right. Yep, looks quite good for a 3D element. Um, and mainly the reason they did it CGI was because the design was so complicated it was the only way to like. Yeah, it's mainly the tapestry style design they needed to do with the CGI. Right. And to help give this character more character, the tassels are 2D uh, animated. And there are actually a couple scenes where uh, the, the carpet is 2D, like especially when you see it from a distance. They usually just kind of draw a blue rectangle. <laughs> but again, not made for HD, perhaps. But uh, carpet, carpet's fun. Carpet leads them to the lamp. And as Aladdin is climbing up to get the lamp, Abu is, of course, tempted by the giant gem that's in the lamp room. Just as Aladdin gets the lamp, Abu snags the gem and then everything is melting and collapsing. You're really seeing the cap system go to work. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we saw in Rescuers Down Under. One of the money shots here, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, Abu stole the lamp and there's a genie inside it. Yeah. Yeah. What's there to say? The genie tells a hundred good jokes. He does. And, you know, several of them a minute. And they have the song Friend Like Me, where he tells Aladdin basically what the deal is. This is, I mean, it is one of the greatest animated musical numbers ever. I debate whether or not it's my favorite. It's the problem we keep having with the Renaissance movies where it's like, what is my favorite scene? Ugh, this is one of them. Yeah, it is. I really like this scene. And again, almost entirely animated by Eric Goldberg's team uh, and just doing I mean, so much. It's so extravagant. It's it's I, it's the scene that made this movie a hit. And it's a great Howard Ashman song. Yep. Again, you can hear the jazziness of it, of like, well, Alibaba had them 40 thieves. Da, 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 mm -hmm. da, 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 da. Robin Williams sings it very well. Yep. Does actually sing this song famously. It's it's a great scene. I do like there's the little callback to the pink elephants from Dumbo. There are so many callbacks to other Disney movies in this one. That we can't really list them all. And he's even able to do so many silly voices in the song. You know, let me take your order. Shut it down. Because you got to have your bad French accent in the Renaissance era. 
So then Aladdin, of course, tricks Genie into getting them out of the cave without actually doing a wish. And I wanted to say real quick, they are so good at establishing the rules in this movie of like, you know, you get three wishes. It can't be killing, forced falling in love and bringing people back from the dead. Nor can you wish for more wishes. Right. You know, which explains why nobody uh, tries to do those things. And there's going to be three wishes. And you see Aladdin make three wishes and you see Jafar make three wishes like they set up the rules and in order for it to be a wish, you have to say the words, I wish. Yep. If Jeannie does something and you don't say that, as in this case, it's a freebie. <laughs> they both set it up well and pay it off well, which is yep. seems like such an obvious thing. But again, even a recent Disney movie from this time could not achieve that as well as this does. So I appreciate it. Yeah, it's very good. We go back to the palace for a brief moment where... Jasmine has told her father about what Jafar did, killing the the boy from the market without her getting to say anything. And the Sultan's like, Jafar, you've overstepped your boundaries. You should not do anything without asking me first. And Jafar is, of course, extremely upset about this whole thing. And then Iago gets a brilliant evil idea that he should be the one to marry Jasmine so that Jasmine will not have him executed as soon as she becomes the ruler. And also this scene while Iago's having this idea sets up that he can imitate Jasmine's voice with perfect precision, because again, we're setting up things to pay off later. Yes. Genie and Aladdin stop off at Little Oasis. Many more good jokes. I like the flight attendant bit that really (laughs) the flight attendant bit talk about, you know, this is like a Looney Tunes character. That is like one of the most Bugs Bunny things. Oh, it very uh, much Which is. is not a not a criticism, just just pointing out. And Aladdin's like, what would you wish for? Genie's like, I would love not being a slave. Which, by the way, this is an interesting thing. One of the reasons, again, Howard Ashman was envisioning kind of a Cab Calloway type uh, character. He was thinking of having a black actor for it. He would give a lot of roles to black actors or somebody who had the kind of power in Broadway he did. That's why, like, Audrey, too, is a black character in Little Shop of Horrors. But uh, I forget who it was. I think it may have been Roy Disney um, was like, maybe we should have a character who is a slave and who is identified as a slave be played by a black person, which I think is a very savvy idea. It also makes it very strange that the live action movie from 2019 <laughs> decides to make the genie a black person. Very <laughs> weird. Anyway, he would like to be free. And Aladdin's like, well, great. I still get two wishes of incredible magical power. That's right. really enough. I'll just make the third wish. You'll be free. And she's like, yeah, right. Whatever. We'll see, dude. I do like that Aladdin He's been given this chance for all this, you know, for whatever he wants. And he's like, wow, I just don't even know. (laughs) What would you wish for? I'm not used to this choice. (laughs) Being able to have things. Right. He's like, what would I even want? (laughs) I guess a bath would be not. No. (laughs) So then, you know, he starts talking about Jasmine. And of course, you know, he can't make people fall in love. but. What does he need to be able to even court Jasmine? He needs to be a prince. This part where Jeannie is like, you know, getting him all princed up 
And then the Prince Ali song. I think that's my favorite. It's hard to pick. It's a very funny version of the fairy godmother. It is. I, it's true. I hadn't thought about that. It is really good. My favorite scene is the Prince Ali song, which technically in between there's Jafar coming to the Sultan being like, I'm going to marry Jasmine, whatever. And more funny Iago Cracker business. But then we're making way for Prince Ali. And again, I, I did not laugh at this movie very much when we watch it, not because it's not a great movie with a lot of great jokes, but because, again, I remember all of it. For whatever reason, this scene still gets me. This is the scene where I laughed the most. Thus, I feel like it has to be my favorite. And again, <laughs> it's another really enjoyable song. Yep. The single funniest part to me, and I, it just kills me and I don't even really know why, is... The guards going, we want the monkeys. Let's see the monkeys. <laughs> the guards who have been so scary and intimidating up to this point. They're they just a want dance to, move. They want to see the monkeys. <laughs> it's like Chuck Norris jokes before that was a thing. Like, it's just, he's so over the top, amazingly great, the best ever. Right, right. I love the little the little moment where we've got the two, him being the, the announcers like from the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade where they're talking about the, (laughs) don't they look lovely, June? Fabulous, Harry. I love the feathers. And of course, they're dressed up all warm, just like those announcers are. And they're showing the the steam from their breath because where it's always cold, even though they're in, you know, the hot desert. It's hot and immense and the heat is intense. And yes, it's true. I was like the little breath coming out of their mouths. It's such a good little thing that you would not get like in the bronze era because they would not have the money for <laughs> something that small. They wouldn't have the money for this musical scene in general. This or a uh, friend like me, like they're so extravagant. And then, of course, the big payoff of Jafar and Iago trying to keep the palace doors shut and then getting flung with Prince Ali. (laughs) This is my favorite part by a hair, by an elephant's hair. And of course, the Sultan is super excited to see there's another suitor. Maybe Jafar won't have to marry Jasmine after all. Unfortunately, uh, Jasmine is not immediately impressed. It's good that Aladdin still has to earn her love. It's true. Despite being in a friend. And and in fact, she liked him more not as a prince because he's lying. And it's, uh-huh. you know, uh, this movie is about a few things. There's definitely the, you know, what's on the outside doesn't match the inside. But it's also about like, don't lie. Be yourself. Yeah. Tell her the truth. <laughs> So, of course, Aladdin is trying to talk to Jasmine and he's doing kind of a terrible job of it because he's not really he didn't really listen to what she, you know, is interested in earlier. So (laughs) he's trying to act the part of a prince, but that's not what she wants. (laughs) Anyway, so, you know, he's like, want to go for a ride? And she's like, "Eh, "Okay." but then he does the do you trust me? And she's like, now, wait a minute. She had actually kind of maybe sort of almost recognized him when he had his big turban off earlier, too, when he's kind of fighting off Raja. So she's that's why she's a little bit more interested. But she's like, no, it can't be. It's just my imagination. But then he does, you know, talk her into going on a ride on the carpet with him. And of course, we get the song A Whole New World. Another contender for favorite. See, I know we talk about this as, you know, this is the song. It's the ballad. 
this is maybe my favorite version of it. Um, it's either this or can you feel the love tonight? But this one has such the better visuals, though. It does have some great visuals in this scene. They're going all over the world. And people like to point out that almost every one of the places they visit now has a Disney movie about it. Um, <laughs> true, not true. Egypt yet. Probably they they felt like Prince of Egypt beat them to the beat them to the punch there. But true. Uh, and then, of course, during the song, he picks an apple and like passes it over to her the same way he had done it as Aladdin. So Jasmine's like, aha, this has got to be that guy whose name I don't even know. She tricks him into revealing it by mentioning Abu because she's very intelligent. I do like that about her. She's not dumb, even though she's sheltered. She's sheltered and she doesn't have as much agency as some of the other great Disney female characters, especially Belle. Yep. But yes, she is still smart. I mean, this is a much higher standard for female character writing than, you know, even our beloved Silver Era. Yeah. Aladdin, of course, the still lies about the fact that he's says he's still a prince and won't admit that he's just a street rat from the market. (laughs) He's like, I like to cosplay as a poor person. You know how it is. And she's like, I do know how it is. (laughs) But then they're actually, you know, getting along, falling for each other. They have a nice kiss. They do have a nice kiss. The carpet helps out with. (laughs) It's a very good animation in that scene where he's, you know, saying goodnight and how, the way his eyes are moving, Aladdin's, you know, yeah. where he's kind of like memorizing her face almost. It's very well done. That's a Glen Keen magic. And so then just as Aladdin is like, ah, oh, yay, finally all good. Then he gets captured by Jafar's guards. <laughs> and he's thrown off a cliff. <laughs> he's trying to get the lamp out of his hat while he's tied up under the water to wish to be set free, but he's kind of goes unconscious before he can say his wish. However, he does manage to rub the lamp. So the genie comes out and basically interprets a kind of a head bob as yes, I'm wishing to have my life saved. So and that is his second wish gone. And I like how pretty quickly here we it seems like we've defeated Jafar. I mean, the end of this movie just really moves super propulsively, but it's like he was hypnotizing you with the stick. He did bad stuff. He tried to kill me. I'm going to break your staff like the staff gets broken and Jafar is revealed as the bad guy. And you're like, wow, can't believe Jafar is already defeated. Um, But then Jafar sees that Aladdin has the lamp. And he escapes because Jafar, when he's throws him off the cliff, does not realize it's Aladdin, does not realize he has the lamp. Hilariously does not recognize this guy who looks exactly like the guy. But he probably didn't even hardly look at him, you know? Yeah, he's just killing it because of this unrelated Jasmine plan. But now he's like, oh, lamps back on the menu. And again, pretty quickly, we, we hit the beats of now Aladdin and Jasmine are going to be getting married and Aladdin's starting to freak out. And he's like, I think I might need you for another wish, Genie. And this is for whatever reason. Another one of my favorite Genie jokes is when he's being the script supervisor. <laughs> yeah. So Aladdin betrays Genie and, and Genie has a really good line where he's talking about, you know, well, you lied to everyone else. I was starting to feel left out. Like, yep, yep. Just very true. Aladdin pretty much makes everybody mad at him at this point. I like that Aladdin realizes immediately, like he calms down enough 
to not be, you know, angry. And it's like, you know, Jeannie is right. I need to tell the truth, Jasmine. I need to tell the truth to everybody else. I need to wish the genie free. She, he's like, I'm going to go tell Jasmine right now. So I like that Aladdin comes to the realization of what he needs to do, but then, you know, circumstances make it so that he can't. <laughs> Iago kind of lures him away from the lamp so he can steal it. And as uh, Aladdin finds Jasmine, basically it's the moment where he's being introduced as her, you know, betrothed to the entire populace of the city. So he doesn't have a chance to say, um, I'm not actually a prince. Actually, <laughs> it's too late. Yeah. Just doesn't get a moment. And in the middle of this, Jafar, of course, wishes to be the sultan. And Sultan Vile Betrayer to you. Yes. <laughs> and shortly after, he wishes to be the most powerful sorcerer in the world. The the genie only offering three wishes is something that they introduced apparently very late into the story. In fact, the uh, the humiliate the boys song mentioned earlier has Jafar making a lot of wishes in order to humiliate the boy. So to preserve some of that. That's why they're like, OK, he wishes to be a sorcerer, so he can't do all the stuff the genie can do, but he can do a lot of it. He doesn't have to be spending wishes. Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, he's got a ton of magic. He can do magic things. Yeah, and it does make sense. It's like this is I feel like Jafar spends his wishes better, but it's because like, well, this is a guy who's constantly thinking about what he wants and he's been thinking about the lamp for so long. He's probably like, all right, I know exactly what I'm doing. Yep. Sultan, most powerful sorcerer. That'll probably cover everything. Then I have a third one for, you know, whatever. Just in case for emergencies, right? You know. Yeah. If I have another good idea, if I want to be a weird creep. <laughs> so then we have a little Prince Ali reprise by Jafar. Yep. This is basically Jafar's villain song. And it's enough. It is. And this is the most Indiana Jones moment with the CGI tower in the snow and Aladdin, you know, cleverly ducking into the window. It's all very cool and actiony. And th through all this, he's able to rescue the carpet and he gets back again. Like he's exiled. He has his moment of realization. We have the all is lost moment. And then he gets back. It's like, if only I had real, re you know, if only I'd freed the genie when I should have. None of this could have happened because the genie would have been free. And Jafar, you know, couldn't have done anything with the lamp. Yep. You so smart. Now. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Agrabah, everything's red. Jafar's got a favorite color. He's making everyone wear red. He's made the sky red. He's just like, it's all red, which I have to say is what I would do. It's pretty much what I've done with my home. It's all black and red. <laughs> so Jafar uh, then as revenge decides to his third wish to be for Jasmine to fall in love with him before the genie can say anything about how um can't actually do that. Jasmine sees Aladdin sneaking in, so she pretends that the wish has worked. Right. And here's the thing. It's super weird that Jafar, a much older man, is interested in Jasmine. But he's the bad guy. Bad guys can be weird creeps. And to be honest, I'm not sure how much he's interested in her as he is interested in getting back at her. Right. Yeah. This is what he thinks of would be the worst punishment for her, which is true. <laughs> it would be pretty bad. <laughs> have to be married to Jafar. Exactly. But she's pretending and she even kisses him to distract him. Because Aladdin trips on a pot. Aladdin, you yes. know, 
kiss. She's like, later, she's like, I had to kiss that gross weirdo because you couldn't keep it together, laddie. <laughs> but um, fortunately, Jafar still sees the, re- the reflection in her crown of Aladdin and the battle is on. Yes, really excellent action sequence. Genie, of course, isn't able to do much because he's technically on Jafar's side. But this is where we have what you and I both agreed is our favorite genie joke. It is our favorite genie joke where he's cheering for Aladdin. He's he's no being a set of cheerleaders going, you know, Aladdin. Yay. You know, I can't remember exactly what he says. Break, break, he's break, our break, man. Break, stick that sword to that snake. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Stick that sword into that snake. And then quiet. you. Uh, Jafar is like, you know, shut up. And then he's like. Jafar, Jafar, he's our man. If he can't do it, great. <laughs> and he's waving the little tiniest flag with a J on. It's so, so funny. Great. There's something about that joke. It's the best one. He does transform into a gigantic snake, as we mentioned. Um, it's the last time Aladdin gets to hold a sword because for all the spinoffs, they're like, oh, that's too violent. <laughs> it's just lame. And so, of course, he eventually tricks Jafar into wishing to be a genie. Beautifully paying off. Right, because he has to outsmart him. So many of the themes of this movie as Jafar, you know, greedily, he has all of the power, but now he is trapped in the lamp. Itty bitty living space. And Iago gets sucked into the lamp with him. Yep. I feel like Jasmine should be a little angrier at Aladdin for all of the lies and all of the bad stuff he's done and for kind of dooming the world. But (laughs) I I wish she got to express, you know, she can still be in love with him and everything, but she should be like, hey, you really screwed up. You should really profoundly apologize. Yeah. But, you know, they're kind of over it. All the magic gets undone and he does apologize. But yeah, I see what you're saying. But I did I did point out he did just literally save her life. So, you know, Genie's like, well, use your last wish. Be a prince. And Land's like, no, I wish the genie free. This also reminded me of Beauty and the Beast, the big fanfare that it's uh, it almost sounds like Mencken is reusing the same song. You're right. It kind of does. The big magical flash. And then he's bouncing all over place like a silly very funny. I, I really like, you know, wish for something crazy. Wish for the Nile. No way. Which is always funny because it's like, um, yeah, but that would have been a fourth wish anyway. <laughs> One thing we didn't mention about Genie is that much like Robin Williams stand up, he slips into a lot of different impressions. Right. Which is funny because when I was a kid, like I think many kids watching this, you don't realize that it's pop culture references. In fact, I saw a lot of people complaining about the new movie, like, oh, why is it so many pop culture references? Because the funny thing is that if you don't know what he's referencing, and even at the time this movie came out, a lot of it was somewhat older culturally. Not all of it, but you know. Well, like Groucho Marx. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> little little out of style by 94, 92 rather. Yes. And yeah, funnily enough, that was the only one I got because I was obsessed with the Marx Brothers. Yeah. Well, because we'd showed you a lot of Groucho Marx. <laughs> What's so great about it is that the jokes are still funny if you don't know the impressions and it's just like a silly face and a funny voice. Right. Um, but anyway, the other thing, though, is that he's, of course, breaking the fourth wall a lot. We mentioned the script supervisor thing and he does a lot of Disney references he turns into Pinocchio at one point he summons Sebastian and here as he's packing up he has the goofy hat of course because he's like going to Disneyland or whatever yep I think what my favorite of his Disney references though is 
in the scene where he's talking to Aladdin, you know, you've just won the heart of the princess. What are you going to do next? And it plays the music, the da, 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 the when you yeah. wish upon a star, because it's basically I'm going to Disney World is what he's, you know, is the is the thing. And I, I've always loved that moment. Yeah, that's my favorite of his. Yes. Disney self-referential references. Anyway. Yeah. So Genie is freed. And this is actually a a twist in the script I really enjoy is the Sultan going, wait a minute, I can just change this rule if none of us like it. I do. In fact, I'm a monarch. I have unlimited power. It's not great, but, you know, I feel like it's really smart. It kind of, you know, throughout the movie, it's like, well, this is so contrived that Jasmine has to marry a prince by this time. Right. And the script kind of gets to have its cake and eat it, too, by having this be a rule that propels the action. But in the end going, yeah, that is dumb. Let's just dump it. <laughs> so then uh, they have a shirtless wedding <laughs> and the moon turns into genie and he lifts up the you know frame and he says, made you look made you look. Yep. Perfect little ending for a movie that is really about the genie and about the jokes. And and I was surprised the credits. I really like how these credits are where they are like genie, the actor and all the animators who worked on it. That's really nice. That's how they should do all these. And also, you're not assaulted with the crappy credits cover immediately. True. You get a little bit of instrumental friend like me. But then it does go into the crappy credits cover of A Whole New World. Which was Disney's first number one uh, billboard chart-topping hit. It was indeed. I was quite surprised, though, at the very end of the credits, there's a couple more genie lines. Yes. And I was like, those haven't been there since the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, so did we figure out, so is that like an addition for the Blu-ray version that's on Disney Plus? Was that always in there? We've just never watched this far in the credits? It was not always in there. I did find something that referenced when it was added. I believe it was for one of the one of the Blu-ray, like the not the DVD version, but the Blu-ray version and then beyond. So that they added those lines in. Mm -hmm. You know where else you can hear genie lines that aren't in the movie? In a disgusting variety of spinoff sequels, remakes, rides and reboots. 10,000 terrible spinoffs will give you such a loss of will to live. (laughs) We can't possibly cover all of them. Why don't you go ahead and take us through uh, whatever you have to say about the parks? They don't actually have nearly as much going on at the parks now as they used to. (laughs) Several of those things I mentioned, the Aladdin's Oasis, the, the musical show are at the parks. They're all gone now. They've been replaced by other things. So at the parks now, of course, they've got the meet and greets and they'll occasionally have a little bit of show. They do have at Walt Disney World a Magic Carpets of Aladdin ride, which is a ride that's like Dumbo. And they have versions in both Paris and Tokyo Disneyland also. But yeah, there's other than like basically it's included in, you know, every parade and, you know, lights show and whatever they're always going to include aladdin or a whole new world or one of those things well obviously uh the most famous and immediate spin-off is the return of jafar the first ever direct-to-video sequel done for a disney movie 1994 internally at disney they were really asking themselves like if we do these kinds of sequels does it like devalue the brand does it make the movies you know less special And the 
answer they got back was spiritually yes, but financially no. The, the Return of Jafar was incredibly successful. Uh, it made a ton of money, like shockingly comparable to the first movie. Wow. Yeah, it made $300 million. And the original movie made $500 million. So, you know, there, there's a gap. But for a direct-to-video sequel, you could only buy on VHS. Like, wow. you could see why they decided to keep doing more of these. Definitely. And Return of Jafar was directed by mainly Alan Zaslov and Tad Stones. Uh, we've talked about Tad Stones before, creator of Darkwing Duck. And they knew they were going to do a TV show. Like this was, and so that's why they brought on Ted Stones and Alan Zaslov, who he'd worked with uh, frequently. And they were going to do a TV show, and much like they did with the aforementioned DuckTales, which had like a five episode pilot. But then they decided it was going to be three uh, episodes worth. But then they decided to instead release it on home video. And again, uh, Peter Schneider and Michael Eisner were like, well, it's cheap in the brand. But eventually they were convinced largely because they thought that the opening was so good, <laughs> which is crazy. I've seen the opening and I think it all sucks. Mm -hmm. So they decided to release it the way it did. And it was a huge success. Katzenberg slashed the budget multiple times and forced them to produce it super quick. And it feels like a thing that was super rushed. Also, of course, they got back. Uh, the entire cast, except for Robin Williams, who is famously replaced by the great voice actor, but not Robin Williams, Dan Castellaneta, best known for his work on The Simpsons, but great in so many wonderful things. You know, it's it's rough. It looks terrible. It was animated by two different studios. One was Disney Animation Australia. The other was Disney Animation Japan and Disney Animation Australia was considered and is considered one of the best outsourced studios they had. They were especially good at big character moments and wild takes. So they were really good at doing the genie and Iago and all that stuff. Meanwhile, Japan was good at like, they were more consistent than Australia, but they wouldn't get as big or as funny or, you know, do as wild of takes. Um, and the weird thing about this movie is literally half of it, like, Split in the middle of a scene like Aladdin jumps and lands and the jump and everything before it is Australia and the land and everything after it is Japan, um, which once you know that you can really tell it looks super strange. They have completely different takes on the characters. The main thing is Tad Stones had the idea of this movie should center around Iago. For two reasons. One, with Robin Williams out of the picture, Gilbert Gottfried is now the biggest name attached to this project. Number two, Iago is the only character who doesn't really have an arc in the first movie. And number three, again, they were already working on the TV show. In fact, some episodes of the TV show aired before this movie came out. And they have Iago being a good guy in the TV show because Jafar is gone. He doesn't appear in the show very much. And they want Iago to still be around because he's very funny and because Gottfried agreed to come back. So, of course, now he's just one of Aladdin's pals. So this movie is mostly about... Like he didn't have enough pals. Yeah, exactly. So this movie is... And in fact, in these spinoffs and in the TV show, Abu kind of becomes pointless because he has, you know, 
too many others and they're all kind of funnier and more interesting than a boot. <laughs> but so this movie is really about Iago becoming a good guy, uh, accidentally helping Jafar return, but then not doing that. Gilbert Gottfried sings two songs. Mom is making a disgusted face just imagining that. <laughs> I don't know. This movie sucks. I hated <laughs> watching this. It's so painful. Dan Castellaneta as the genie, he's doing his best. You know, having seen a lot of these movies, a lot of these spinoffs, and thus heard a lot of terrible replacement voices, he's pretty good. But you just can't match it. And it's so obvious that this production was rushed and they didn't let him ad lib at all. In this movie, he's clearly doing subpar Robin Williams material someone else wrote for him. Yeah. It sure feels like that, and it's bad. The sequel to that is... Aladdin and the King of Thieves. Yes, I always forget the exact title, but Aladdin and the King of Thieves, where again, Katzenberg was gone, so Robin Williams did come back, uh, and they also decide to basically do Alibaba and the 40 Thieves with Aladdin replacing Alibaba, and uh, dad status. Dad status alive. Aladdin's father is the king of thieves. What? And he's played by known Islamophobe John Reese Davies. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, the actual story of this movie sucks. I'm not interested in Aladdin's daddy issues, which of course didn't exist before this movie. Jasmine has nothing to do. They really struggle in all of these movies and the TV show spinoff with. What does Genie do now? Yeah. What are his rules? Because he's not exactly a genie anymore. So basically, he can continue to do anything that's funny, but he can never be useful. Genie is not even remotely a character in King of Thieves. He's just doing Robin Williams stand up like totally anarchic, totally. And the, the thing about this movie, Castellaneta had actually recorded all of his dialogue for it and they had animated it. When they got Robin Williams, they not only let him redo all of his dialogue, but they then reanimated all of it. And this is very much, you know, the movie where Robin Williams came back. It opens with a big genie musical number. Oh, yeah. I mean, they advertised it completely in the in the trailer for it. The One of the main things is genie coming in going. I'm back yes. in Robin Williams' voice, of course. Like, that was always... They even show him in studio in the trailer. Yeah. They show, like, here's Robin Williams in the studio. We really do have Robin Williams. Come and see this one. It's good. Or not come and see this one. It's direct a video. Get your parents to buy this one. It's good. Here's the thing. This movie is literally structured so that for the majority of it, where it's Aladdin and his dumb dad and the dumb villain doing dumb stuff in the desert, cutting back to the genie setting up for Aladdin and Jasmine's wedding and doing bits with Iago, Abu, Carpet and Jasmine. And so it's literally like the plot happens and then you cut to genie being funny for five to ten minutes. <laughs> And then you cut back to plot and you're like, uh, and then we cut back to Genie. Yay. <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything, but at least it's funny. So, you know, by default, it's better, but it's not really a cohesive movie. So I still wouldn't really recommend it unless you're just dying for more Robin Williams bits. Then sure, you could do worse. The TV show, people will say it's great. People will say like it's one of the best Disney animated TV shows 
Um, especially of the ones that are just like after Aladdin and after the Aladdin TV show was a big hit. Yeah. The Disney afternoon mostly just turned into shows based off of the movies, the terrible little mermaid show, the terrible Hercules show, the very good Buzz Lightyear show. I remember watching the Aladdin show. It was, I, but see, I haven't watched it since. Like I watched it when I was a teenager and I enjoyed it then, but I was like anything Aladdin. Yay. Ted Stones, in addition to directing both of these Aladdin sequels, directed the Buzz Lightyear Star Command Adventure Begins movie uh, that you and I really love and that I keep saying, like, I want to track down a copy of. But literally the only copy I know of is on Amazon. You could buy a used copy for over six hundred dollars, <laughs> which is a lot. I like that movie a lot, but I don't know if I like it more than, you know, six months of utility payments. Pretty sure it'll come on Disney Plus eventually. But apparently the Aladdin one was good. I don't know. I didn't bother tracking it down. I'm sure there is. I'm sure where there's a will, there's a way. But I I, I was too much. There is, of course, a Broadway musical for Aladdin from 2014, as well as uh, Delarm from 2019. I want to talk about the Delarm a bit. Did you uh, bother watching this one? Did not bother watching this one. Excellent choice. I watched bits of it for this in preparation. Yeah. Uh, mostly like the songs, because I think the songs are always very telling because they're the most fun parts of the animated movies and the least fun parts of the live action movies. <laughs> it's true. So, you know, the Delarm did a very good thing, which is casting, you know, people of color in all the roles. Right. Nice, good, great. The correct way to do it. But they don't have fun. It's not fun. The thing about the movie Aladdin is that it's fun. It's fun and it's funny and it has a lot of energy. And the Delarm makes so many misguided decisions. Two big mistakes that they made, in my opinion. One is Jafar. I think because Jafar is seen as one of the most problematic parts of the original movie, for right or wrong, they were very scared of having him do anything. So like uh. Iago is just a parrot, not a talking parrot, just a regular CGI parrot. And Jafar is not very fun. He doesn't get to be, you know, oh, Jonathan Freeman, you know, being very smooth and scary and being very funny. Whoopee! <laughs> He's just like, I am Jafar. I am evil. And I don't even know that it's the actor's fault. It feels like he's being directed very badly. Uh, you could tell Guy Ritchie, who is a man best known for basically making every single genre and story about a British guy who punches people, <laughs> is so wrong for the material and doesn't seem to have any interest. Like even at the time, all the interviews like he did this so he could make a lot of money and continue <laughs> making weird low budget movies about British lads beating each other up in it, etc. Then the other mistake, I really think Will Smith as the genie is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea because the correct way to do the genie is because nobody else, even again, Dan Castellaneta, good voice actor, could not be a very good genie because no one can do Robin Williams shtick except Robin Williams. Yep. And the genie as the original character is just Robin Williams shtick. Yep. So... The correct way to do this is to do what they did with like the 2016 Ghostbusters movie and go, OK, we're not trying to do the same thing again. We will cast a new comedian and let them do their shtick. Yeah. And let them do their own comedic thing. 
Which is the reason you mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, the uh, show we watched with the genie that was doing more modern pop culture references. Yeah. That the show that's, you know, a dinner theater version. It's a super condensed version of the movie. I remember that genie being super funny. He was. Because he wasn't doing the Robin Williams bits. Right. The genie in this, first of all, again, Will Smith, I love him. I absolutely love Will Smith. Not a comedian. I know he started a sitcom, but he's not like a stand-up comic with developed shtick. Yep. A lot of his best jokes in movies I love from him are one-liners, right? Like, welcome to Earth, not bits. And second of all, he's just doing the Robin Williams stuff. If you want to watch this movie, and you should not, I encourage you to instead just watch the friend like me scene, which is so much more boring. He's not turning into a ton of different genies. He's not, you know, doing all the crazy facial contortions and stuff because mm-hmm. they would have to do that and CGI would look bad. Yeah. But he's also, he's not just singing the same song, but he's singing it the same way Robin Williams did. Oh. Like one of the parts that's the most bothering for me is when he's like, you know, we pride ourselves on service. You're the king, the boss, the czar. Uh, and he says something about whatever you wish, it's yours, true dish, right? And so he says it when he's going, we pride ourselves on service. He tries to do the weird little, we pride ourselves on service. And when he gets to true dish, he tries to go, true dish. But he doesn't have the ridiculous vocal range Robin Williams did. So he's just kind of like, we pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the thing, the this. He sounds like he's half asleep. Yeah. He sounds so boring i think just compared to robin williams it's such a miscalculation if you're gonna bring on will smith his version of you know friend like me should be a rap it should be dj jazzy jeff definitely they should have just switched it up at the very least if he's gonna do the same song he should not have to try to imitate the reflections of robin williams he's not robin williams he's will smith he's a different guy which is our basic complaint about all of the delarms yes trying too much to be like the animated movies without being enough like the animated movies and falling short so that all you can think of when you're watching them is Man, I wish I was watching the original animated movie because this is much more boring. They also give Genie a wife and a family and it's super dumb. Super, super that dumb. That is weird. Pointless and stupid. Really quick, there were a zillion video games. There were indeed. The one that I played all the time as a kid was, it is called Disney's Aladdin in Nazira's Revenge. Do you remember this? Vaguely. Let me show you, send you a picture of the cover with the ridiculous Jafar face. Oh, yes. But basically, isn't the story of that one like the same as, you know, Little Mermaid 2 and, you know, all that? So at the end of Return Jafar, Jafar dies. Right. So this is about Nazira, Jafar's sister that definitely existed before this, trying to bring Jafar back to life, which is funny because for the Hercules TV show, there was a crossover episode between it and the Aladdin show. Yeah. I forget what it's called. It's like uh, Hercules goes to Agrabah or something. But Hercules and Aladdin crossover, and it's kind of the same plot as this. It doesn't have J- uh, Jafar's sister, but Jafar is in the underworld with Hades. So uh. both of them are like, he was not just defeated at the end of Return Jafar, or he is canonically dead. Yep. Which is very funny. So Nazir is trying to bring him back. Most the cast of the TV show came back for this. So, you know, we've got uh, Scott Weiner. 
We also have Linda Larkin, Dan Castellaneta, or Scott Weinger, rather, Jonathan Freeman as Jafar, and fascinatingly, Jody Benson as Nazira. <laughs> hey, she comes back for those Disney dollars. Now, this one, we've talked in our mailbag episode about like the Buzz Lightyear Star Command game and the uh, uh, Toy Story 2 action game that were both developed by Traveler's Tales and very good. This one was like sold as part of the same series. It's the same cover style that you recognize on the PC version, but it was not developed by Traveler's Tales, the great makers of those games and the Lego games. It was made by Argonaut Games. And rewatching this now, there's a three and a half hour video on YouTube of someone playing the whole thing. Yeah. This game is garbage. It looks so bad. The animations are so cheap. The characters' mouths don't move when they talk. Yeah. Uh, all I remember from playing this as a kid is that it was impossible. Like, I never got past level two. I have not seen what the end boss is until now watching it. By the way, the end boss is a giant severed Jafar head. Creepy, creepy. Really a terrible video game. There are many other video games, some of which people prefer. There's a famous NES game, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about Nazira's Revenge. <laughs> Mom, would you recommend Disney's Aladdin in Nazira's Revenge? Uh, or this movie? I would recommend this movie. I don't know that I could recommend any of the other spinoffs and things. I have enjoyed all of the Aladdin things I experienced at the parks. <laughs> but yeah, the, the park shows and things I quite enjoyed. And the movie is quite fun. And it's a good laugh and a lot of good songs. I love listening to the music. I would also recommend this movie, obviously. I mean, I, I loved it. And even if I don't love it now as much as I did, the character of Jasmine annoys me a little bit. Uh, I've simply watched it too much, which is my own fault. It's still great. I still enjoyed rewatching it. No amount of cynicism can can conquer my love for this movie. And I, I think about it. I agree with you. None of the spinoffs are, are worth a toot at all. <laughs> I think if you must, King of Thieves is OK. Uh, or watch The Thief and the Cobbler recobbled version, even as an unfinished movie. It's really, really good. Just gorgeous animation. <laughs> Um, not technically a spinoff, but that's well worth your time. And would you recommend this to a child? Obviously, you let your kids watch it. I would indeed. Yes, I did let my kids watch it. I don't think you were ever scared of Jafar, even though he gets to be a big snake. Apparently, big snakes are not as scary as giant octopus ladies. I didn't love the big <laughs> snake. I do remember I was a little, you know, eh, but he's not there for very long is the thing. And. You know, Aladdin's got a sword. He seems like he can handle himself. Uh, yeah, and I'd show it to a kid, obviously. I've watched it as a kid 800 times, and I turned out okay, and so did my brother. <laughs> oh, that is, I'm sorry, one other weird spinoff I just wanted to mention. <laughs> I, I promise this can be super quick. Every time we watched this movie on the aforementioned DVD, there was a DVD bonus feature we would watch every single time. This is on YouTube now. It's called Inside the Genie's Lamp. Uh-huh. Uh, it's about six minutes long. I'll send this to you in case you want to watch it later. It is the voice of Gilbert Gottfried, so maybe you don't want to watch this later. <laughs> and it's terrible CGI. It It's uh, basically Iago is moving out of Jafar's evil, scary black lamp, and he thinks he might want to move into the genie's old lamp. So it's kind of almost a goofy how-to short where he's like, 
flying into all the different rooms in Genie's lamp <laughs> and uh, running into stuff. And like it, it's almost maybe a Donald Duck short where he's like, you know, keeps turning on the machines and he gets like sprayed with stuff and hurt and all his feathers get ripped off. And at the end, he's like, well, this sucked. I obviously don't want to be here anymore. Um, and then he's like, oh, you're trapped here until someone rubs the lamp. So <laughs> it's a it's a funny little short with Yago. I watched it this week. Mostly doesn't hold up. There's some good jokes. There's one I think even you would really enjoy, which is where Iago, he's inside the lamp and it's this, you know, huge, spacious CGI mansion. And he's like, this was the lamp of that genie, the one who was always kvetching about his itty bitty living space. <laughs> and the voice of the lamp goes kvetching. And he goes, it's a bird expression. <laughs> There's a few good jokes. It's not really worth your time, but my brother and I loved this. I sent it to him uh, over Discord and I was like, you remember this, right? And he was like, oh, yeah, that's funny. So um, to me, you know, you haven't watched Aladdin until you've watched Inside the Genie's Lamp. It's not <laughs> that good. OK, final spinoff next week. We'll be back. Oh, also email the mailbag. M-E-M-O-M-M-O-U-S-E. If there is an Aladdin spinoff you want to hear about, we didn't cover somehow. Send it into the mailbag. We'll cover it on a mailbag episode. Next week, we are watching 1994's The Lion King. Mom, what do you think of that movie? This movie inspired some really great music. Uh, this, this movie has some really great music. I'm excited to talk about it. Me too. Tune in next week to hear us discuss all of it. Until then, I'm me. I'm mom. I'm history. I'm mythology. I'm free. And it all started with a mouse. <laughs>